Welcome to the 52nd episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about if and when it is appropriate to use technical solutions for social problems. This comes up so frequently in this field that it's just really not funny anymore. A lot of folks who are very technically minded will rush to a technical solution for a problem either with people or with politics or with other kind of intangible things that say, oh, we can solve this with, with technology. And there are cases where this is solve perfectly... this with Docker. <laughs> yeah. There are cases where this is completely valid. And there are cases when this isn't. And today we're going to talk a little bit about how and why to pick those apart and understand when 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 the solutions are, are appropriate. So I feel like I have to start with technical technical solutions to social problems are rarely effective. I tend to avoid them more or less at all costs because it's usually a sinking pit of doom uh, that will distract you from getting any real work actually accomplished. Usually social social problems are best handled socially. Yeah, I, was, I agree. I was going to say nine times out of ten, if you try to use a technical solution to solve a social issue, uh, it's it's going to fail or not render the the outcome you were expected. Now, we're not talking about social issues like global politics or climate change or or social issues as far as as the populace of a nation state. Um, there are definitely lots of things that we can do technically to help with climate change, for example. But climate change isn't actually a social problem. There are lots of things that we can do there. But the social problem is you getting people to agree uh, what to do. And zooming back in on sort of the system administrator company level, the social aspects that come into question is if you have a small team of developers and you can't agree on a workflow for building a code base and submitting patches and iterating through that code base to make improvements, there is no ticketing system or code review system or version of Git that will make that easier for you. Those social issues have to be worked through and you have to form some sort of social contract of how you're going to operate. And that's when usually the tools come in to make that easier. As I was digging into this topic, um, I was looking just for the phrase technical solutions to social problems. And there was a post to one of the IETF mailing lists in 2002. So a little while ago, uh, they're talking about DNS. And one of the, the commenters mentioned that technical solutions for social problems almost never work. And the reply I found very illuminating. And it was a bit of thought will reveal that technical solutions often do help with social problems, but they don't solve the problems entirely or forever. For example, locks on doors and surveillance cameras are technical mechanisms to deter theft. They don't prevent theft, but they do discourage it. And we sort of agreed as a culture that theft is is a bad thing. We want to discourage it. But locks keep honest people honest. Exactly. Locks tell people... Hey, this is locked. This is private. Don't enter. Because if you really want to go through a lock, it's not difficult. 
join your local uh, lock sporting community if you uh, want more information. But if you actually want to teach somebody the concept of hacking, um, start with a lock, a physical lock. The similarities are amazing. And to pick off of your Git analogy, Jack, I mean, there's there's several ways that you can do your Git commit styles and everything. You can do, you know, was it Git flow? There's GitHub flow a little bit. There's there's various ways. There's different methods or oh, e.g. Thomas the. <laughs> um, and then so those are the various locks, and that so they help encourage healthy commits or healthy merge habits or whatever your problem you're trying to solve. But there are technical solutions for that. But those are just tools. They're not actually. They're uh, tools to enforce the social contract that you've already agreed upon. Exactly. Yeah. If your company has a coding standard, you know, we're we're going to use tabs and not spaces. We're going to use we're this is our indentation style. Those kinds of things. You can set your your commit system to validate and lint based on that. You say, okay, we're, we're going to follow this style guide for Puppet or whatever it is, or this Python. We're going to use Pepe for Python. You can have the build system reject PRs that don't follow that pattern because that's a really easy technical check to make. And as long as the social contract amongst the development staff is this is how we're going to do it, when a new person shows up and they get a rejection, you can say, oh, you, you must have missed the, the introduction memo. We really try to follow this coding standard to make our code clean. And you bring them into the social side of it and the the gate on the on the PR system isn't designed as the solution it is a safeguard and it's different than having it be the thing we rely on it's not the big hammer now i was also thinking on the subject a little bit and i actually have an anti-pattern that i think uh fits this bill and that is sometimes not having any uh solutions to try and solve social problems and and my example for that is a a flat hierarchy at a company obviously there's can be debates on either side but in my opinion you need a you need some form of a hierarchy or reporting structure in companies. I, I believe you just need to have it. And I feel that companies that have a very flat hierarchy uh, tend to, to breed nasty social environments because it's, it's extremely competitive and the people who uh, know how to work out uh, little clicks or politics internally uh, can uh, game those systems. But the, the, the beginning of those systems were at a way to say, hey, we're not going to solve this problem because we, we feel like we can just move past it. We're, we're all smart. We're all technically capable. We could just work on these problems, and it will just work out amongst itself. And the, the absence of a structure actually bred issues as well. And I, I would argue that that is a failure on both sides. You don't have a technical solution and you don't have the social solution. You don't, you, you, you don't have your social contract established correctly and you also don't have the technical guide rails to keep people from veering off the cliff. So it's, right. it's doubly dangerous. Um, another place where I think this is actually where having technical guide rails is really good is when you have a third-party system, either the one that you're running that somebody else wrote or you're using an Amazon API or those kinds of things. And because of of history or because of documentation or whatever it is, you have unknowable or unteachable resource limitations. And so instead of letting somebody who doesn't know and is unable to casually discover that we can only ask this API a thousand times a day from croning it and then hitting it every minute and suddenly the company breaks, you know, at 7 p.m. Oops. You 
you can use technical solutions in those cases to say, no, you, you may not ride this ride until you've taken the basic safety course because you have to understand kind of the intro. Um, I run into this very frequently with the Elk stack that we run. With five users, Elk is a simple thing to run. You can have people with unfettered access to the search bar and they can do whatever they want and it pretty much just survives it. At 50 users, it gets kind of difficult. At 500, it's impossible because there's no way you can keep up with just staff attrition and hiring to keep people trained up on best practices for not overloading the cluster. And so that's where it's one of the common places where I reach into the technical solution bag and say, okay, we are going to outlaw entire classes of queries because while they can be very useful, they are also extraordinarily dangerous. And most people don't need them for what we're using it. And so I just turn them off. And people will complain about, oh, I can't do this. And it's like, yes, well, you were smart enough not to blow this up. But the new guy we hired last week doesn't know that that's a problem. And he or she, when they run the query, is going to take the cluster out. So we just turn it off. So this is a common pattern that I definitely see a lot. You have a sub-team somewhere in the company that builds a solution, say Elk in this case, uh, we're able to scale and move that solution forward and keep up with the logical growth of the company. And most of the rest of the users in the company see that solution as it's there, it just works. There's a couple guys in the back that keep it happy. Um, and it's basically always scalable or at near zero cost for a user to, to use. And combined with the with human nature of folks focus on other problems probably don't want to dump a lot of cognitive burden on how that particular system in this case elk really and truly works so they end up throwing things at it and throwing queries at it to try to get the data out they need without a lot of understanding of how that system has evolved and scaled uh, to meet the demands of the company and this basically snowballs to the point where you have a group of users that don't have a lot of familiarity with the system and it's very easy to push the system over uh, unless your uh, log system is larger than the actual applications that you're running. Um, so how do you protect the, the logging system against all the new hires and all the folks that haven't taken time to really fully understand the impacts of of how they're using the system. Yeah, and I, I agree. I think that's a valid case and that example to have a technical solution to, as you put it, have guardrails up. And I think uh, that happens really anytime you have a small team that has built out a service internally of a company or internally at a university perhaps and has done a good job with it. And it very easily can be seen as a always successful uh, service. In fact, you're victims of your own success. And that sort of starts causing this problem. Another area that I find is a is a good place to start with the, this is the solution we have, so we have to use it, is essentially the entire field of network security. If we could socially engineer, or socially not engineer, because that's actually the wrong phrase entirely. If we could establish a social contract with all of the users of the internet, not to be bad actors, we could not have to worry about, about network security. But we that's an, un, that's an unsolvable problem. 
Yeah, that so, was 20 years ago on the internet. I was about to say, that was when it was first born. Yeah. When, when you knew the other 10 people using it, sure. But right. now we have droves of technical and very complicated technical solutions to this this very human social problem of we can't trust people not to do stupid things. Or we can't trust people to do smart things and use that for, for evil. Well, yes, I was I was using stupid in the, the wrong sense, but yes. Reaching back to the DNS article from 2002, one of the comments that was made in the in the, in the exchange was, we aren't designing technology for te- technology's sake. We're designing technology be, to be deployed and used. A lot of people at every organization I've ever worked for reach for technical things because they are trying to design things because they want to go build something. And that is probably the worst time to reach for a technical solution is the, hey, I could build a thing that does this. No, no, yep. no, 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 stop. Does it need to be built is the first question you ask. And most of the time, or half the time at least, the answer is no. Go talk to people. I see this in software development all the time. I like using Go. And I think Go is, has a really powerful standard library. And the flags package in standard library is really, really quite powerful for handing, handling uh, command line options and arguments. So if I want to write a command line utility, should I try to stick with the standard library flags package as much as possible? Or do I immediately reach out to this big, fancy, shiny, complex flags packages that includes a kitchen sink and you know, scrubs the dishes at night? And I would much rather stick with the tools in the standard library for as much as possible. Yet I see most people, really, if they're writing a command line daemon, they reach for all these non-standard tools on GitHub because they're shinier. And that's not usually what I do to solve a problem. I want to keep the problem scope as simple and as small as possible. Yeah, but un- unfortunately, that you, you see that with a lot of things, right? Where uh, it's just for some people, they want to go out and look for the various solutions to, to things instead of trying to keep it, you know, quote unquote core or keep it simple. They want to go out and use the third party flags, use a third party HTTP uh, router in the Go, keeping with the Go theme. Um, you know, they say, well, you can't do this easily with the built-in HTTP router with Go and all this kind of stuff, or HTTP handler. Um, and, oh, i got to build my own router. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so uh, that that's really where a social contract would come into play, where you, you would want to teach your younger developers or your developers to make better decisions when it comes to choosing those libraries or keeping with uh, what is included with the standard, standard libraries. And I've been there, and I I feel people. And especially when I was inexperienced and just starting off in my career, it was really easy to grasp onto the new shiny things that were coming out in the Linux community. They were really easily visible. Uh, lots of people were talking about them. Um, so that's what you become familiar with. And we do a lot worse job at... Uh, bring people's familiarity to perhaps more mature, uh, more stable systems that 
that work and solve problems and that are simple. So it's really easy to sort of fall in the habit of, of preferring a newer or a shinier solution rather than something more simple. And I, I actually blame uh, current hiring practices for that because you really don't see anymore where you have like junior, mid-range, and then senior level positions or at least uh, maybe it's just where I'm looking for jobs or whatever. Well, you see that, but, but the titles don't mean a lot anymore. Well, that's true, too. But it, it just feels like nowadays that everybody is looking for what they call a senior level. Most of the time, you may not get that. But they say they want a senior level. And, and a lot everybody of organizations... Everybody wants a senior level, and the guys fresh out of college get hired as seniors. Right. But, I mean... <laughs> But your whole team is either all that or there's very few. I mean, there's not. it's not like, you know, like a, a 20-20-60 mix or something like that where there's – or whatever the split that would be the best, where you would have a group that is green slash junior, a group that is more mid-range, and then a group that's senior. Uh, to, and then to help pass knowledge down, train up, and, and, you know, learn as you go, it's more of – it's almost expected for you to have the experience and be able to do everything on the job from the beginning. And I think a lot of a lot of those decisions uh, or decision making process has been lost for uh, some of the uh, younger people coming up because it's just been they've been thrust in the spotlight, and that's just what they've done since four jobs ago. Is they just reach for this one of the tool. things that I am so super thankful about and reflect on often is the fact that when I was green and I was cutting my teeth, I had several uh, systems ministers that I worked with that literally had 20, 25 years of experience in the field. They may have thrown Solaris at me and I may have grumbled because I'd rather use a GNU tools and Linux. But I, I really cannot thank those mentors enough for what they've taught me. And having, having systems administrators and developers actively in your team that have 15 or 20 years of experience is an awesome thing to behold. And I look at a lot of clients now and I sort of look around the room and I don't see a lot of people that are kind of over 30 or 35. I agree that universities are an excellent place to start in the beginning of your career. It is a wonderful environment to be inquisitive and to learn things and to not have a company's quarterly deadlines, you know, coming after you as the driving factor for everything that happens in life. The universities have semester schedules and they have those things that kind of come and go, but it's a different kind of intensity and it's much more forgiving for a inexperienced and intimidated new hire to cut their teeth and kind of get started with things. I mean to go off on a tangent there, just I feel like it is connected somewhat. I feel like it's very connected. Another place that people look for technical solutions to social problems for me comes into the area of um, change management. You know, all companies, all organizations have to implement technical changes to technical systems and people want to have a guideline and a framework and how do we do this? And so I can't remember the organization's full title, but I think it's the ITIL stuff. They have this whole crazy list of this is how you define things and how you modify things and how you mock things and how you change things and how you suggest changes. And for most organizations, it's wildly overkill. But instead of going through the process to figure out what the right 
social contract for the organization is of how do we communicate the stakeholders the appropriate information when we're making a change that has some risk to it. They say, we're going to go full bore into a very, very complicated and specific and technical change management process because it's, hey, we can we can implement this. We can hire some people to come in and train our, train our folks on how to use it, and then we're done and we have solved change management. And it's, no, you have implemented a system that allows you to say that you're doing change management and all of the people who are implementing it probably hate it and are doing everything they can to get out of having to actually implement it, which means that you are not seeing the changes. You, the changes aren't being reported correctly. And those that are using it end up take twice as long to roll out a change. And those that are successful at keeping changes rolling out smoothly probably aren't actually using it. Yeah, I've written a few change requests in an ITIL uh, compliant framework before, and uh, I love it because I mean half the answers are almost a, a, a throwback to the question, like the, you know, what will happen if if there's an issue during the change process, roll this back or something. I mean, it's just, you know, I, I understand why why some of those are there and why some of those questions would be valid, but I feel like there's better ways to solve that, at least for the way I would do things anyway. And much like we talked about Agile quite a, quite a many episodes ago, it's one of those things that a subset of that would be great to be able to record and document when and how things change and have a standard policy of this is how we select the, the teams that we're going to communicate with or whatever it is. But much like with the Agile stuff, in Agile, I really don't need most of the stuff that gets prescribed as Agile. We don't need time box. We don't need a bunch of the other things. But it's part of this, hey, we're going to implement this solution because it's a good technical solution. It's like, yes, but what's the problem you're trying to solve? Always start by asking, what is the problem we're trying to solve rather than saying, hey, I've got this great solution. Let me go find a problem I can solve with it. Docker. Kubernetes. In all seriousness, the, the obvious solution to all of this is you have to do the hard work of going out and finding what the social problems are or the political problems are and going and trying to understand why this is being solved for. Some of these things can be solved by simply having a conversation with your boss and some are organization wide and can never be solved. In which case you may have to find a technical solution as distasteful as it is. It's definitely probably equally distasteful to continue to assume that every new hire is going to get a you know a couple hour long lesson in in how to use elk effectively and that that information is going to be kept well up to date by those that have passed through that that course previously um, and as you build more and more similar services that effect multiplies you know, how do you expect everyone to be a intermediate level knowledge person about every other system in the company. And that's not really feasible or obtainable. You can't expect a Java developer to come into an organization and then spend the first two weeks on three or four hour classes on, okay, this is how Puppet works and this is how DNS works and this is how Elk works and this is how Prometheus works and this is how all the other things. That, that's not a tenable solution or situation to find yourself in. Because even if you try, the information at the end of two weeks is gone. Which definitely brings us back to technical solutions for social problems. 
generally a bad idea, but sometimes they actually Sometimes work. one needs actual verification to let someone know that what they've done is is potentially harmful. Well, it's, I guess it's like with everything in life, right? If if nothing, you're not going to be able to shortcut hard work. And yeah, sometimes nope. it might be awkward or hard to sit the team down and work through issues. It might even be you know really difficult, but it just has to be done. You you're not going to be able to say, oh, well, we can just use this technical solution and and get out of having to talk to everybody because you'll still have to do it. I blacklist certain queries against my graphite cluster because those queries can be expensive enough that they end up taking down the graphite cluster basically especially as you load them up on a dashboard and they get executed over and over repeatedly and as my graphite footprint has grown and i've been trying to get people to move toward prometheus my list of queries i blacklist has has definitely grown and i don't particularly like that solution it's a fairly new solution for me and folks don't get the best user experience when they get an HTTP error saying your expression has been blacklisted. That's not, well, seeing that in Grafana isn't a great user experience. You get the red exclamation point res- response error instead of anything user-friendly. And that list is growing as the cardinality explosion continues in Graphite. There's totally hard work to really solve that and that involves a lot of work from a lot of people throughout the company to make that transition into uh, using Prometheus or using Graphite Smarter or using StatsD Smarter and again that gets back into if I need that much cooperation from the developer side of the house I've got to train a lot of them up and make them intermediate level users of that service so they can um, have enough knowledge to figure out how to move forward. And that's sort of where I get into the, the Catch-22 situation of how do you move forward with that problem where you can't expect every developer to learn everything but every system, yet you need a good handful of developers to learn enough to be able to make Uh, changes in their code to use a specific system better one of the other interesting things i find about this whole thing is there was a journal article in 1977 this is the earliest reference i could find by casually searching and it was titled technical solutions to social problems some implications of a computer-based welfare benefits information system it was ironically going back to what jack said in the beginning of the episode about this is not we're not talking about social welfare. We're talking about computer issues or technical technical systems. This actually was a study done based on the the welfare system in the United States, and they were trying to use computer systems to help people understand what benefits were available to them. Um, the project incorporated a computer-based information system, which provided individuals who supplied details of their financial or other household circumstances with personalized information about their entitlement to a wide range of benefits. Although the project was a technical success, it made little impact on take-up rates. Um, the study went on quite lengthy to talk about how complex the problem was and how hard it was to actually measure and study and all these things, but they realized that one of the largest problems with welfare benefit uptake was due to needing to simplify administrative functions that already existed rather than introduce new solutions to help the citizens actually understand what was available to them. 
And they commented that this is no easy task and is fraught with political and organizational problems. This was written more than 40 years ago, and it applies extraordinarily well to all of the things that we deal with now. Um, this problem is an old problem. It's been around since we've had social systems and have tried to find other ways to handle these kinds of problems. The problems we deal with practically as far as systems administration, DevOps, and, and coding work, it's new technology, but oddly enough, the problems have been discovered before, and usually several decades or 50 years before. So it's always incredibly enlightening for me to go back and and look at uh, theory about how a factory works efficiently and how that applies to the software development process or theory about solving social problems from 40 years ago. Uh, a lot of the problems that we, that we mistake as new problems because they're in a new context are actually well understood in the, in the appropriate circles. And bringing that into our modern day circles is, is a challenge that we face. So we have another social problem. We need more people to listen to and comment on this podcast. There's a social contract on our website. And what is the address of that website, Jack? Operations.fm. Point in your favorite browser. It's also helpful if you take the time to rate the show in either Apple Podcasts or Overcast or whatever podcast directory that you prefer. It helps people find the show. Also, word of mouth, if you were to share this on Facebook or with other people you might, that might find this interesting. We know we have a fairly narrow content window that we, we kind of live inside of, and it's hard to get the word out sometimes. And your feedback really helps us with ideas for the show and things to talk about. And we'd love to get some more feedback and some more great ideas and community involvement in, in what we do. That wraps it up for the 52nd episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. Thanks. Tucker. <laughs>